Welcome to episode 17 of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss the new developments in atomic spectroscopy, particularly those related to new advances in the field. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode of our Analytically Speaking podcast, we have invited Dr. Jake Shelley to discuss recent breakthroughs and advances in atomic spectroscopy, including new hardware and software tools for mass spectrometry for analysis of complex samples. Dr. Jake Shelley is the Alan Paul Schultz Professor of Chemistry in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Shelley's research explores new hardware and software tools for mass spectrometry for improved detection and identification of analytes, particularly in complex matrices. He is an emerging leader in the field of atomic spectroscopy, as noted by his academic background and involvement with journals, conferences, and by multiple awards, publications, and patents. More information and links about Professor Shelley and his research can be found within our podcast postings. Well, Jake, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get started. Jake, can you tell us about your academic background and how you became interested in atmospheric pressure plasmas as ionization sources for mass spectrometry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I started my, my academic career at um, Northern Arizona University in, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And it was during that time that I started to get involved in undergraduate research. Um, I was interested in analytical chemistry because I had enjoyed the quantitative analysis course and instrumental analysis course. Um, but the professor for that course uh, didn't have any room in her group. Um, however, she found that I, I could work with somebody else in the department who was looking for somebody to help resurrect an inductively coupled plasma emission instrument um, and use it for, um, for biological analyses. And so I became that person. I knew nothing about inductively coupled plasmas or really analytical instrumentation in general, but it was a fun task to kind of get this thing working again and, and apply it. Um, and around the same time, kind of in the, the, uh, during the summers, uh, I would go back to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where I'm originally from, and I had an internship at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Um, conveniently and kind of through happenstance, it was in the uh, it was in an analytical uh, division where uh, the various groups were developing new analytical tools for a variety of purposes. Um, while I was there, I, I met a new postdoc. Um, actually, my job at the time was to develop the website for for this group. And so I got to talk to all of the people about their projects and what what cool new instrumentation they were developing. Um, and, and in this process, I met a new postdoc, uh, James Barnes, who had just come from Indiana University. He got his PhD with Gary Hefia. And he, uh, while he was telling me about his research, had actually built an entire mass spectrometer from the ground up and coupled a glow discharge ionization source with it, a reduced pressure glow discharge ionization source. And while I was talking to him about the purpose of the project and whatever, I, I very distinctly remember, even to this day, standing in that room with him in amazement that a chemist can actually build instruments that have some purpose to them. And so to me, that was just really incredibly fascinating. Um, and so it was through James's urging, actually, that I, I uh, apply to graduate schools and PhD programs. 
Uh, I ultimately went to Indiana University, where he had come from, um, again, kind of through happenstance. Um, and when I was looking at research groups there, there were several that were really interesting to me. Um, one of them was Professor Gary Hefia. And for those of you that might know, uh, Professor Hefia works in a variety of areas, uh, but he's primarily known in the atomic spectroscopy community. Uh, but he has, has worked in a number of areas in vibrational spectroscopy, uh, molecular mass spectrometry, a whole wide variety of areas. And so after I joined his group, um, I was hearing about the different projects going on. Um, there was a small uh, group in, in there within, within his larger research group that was developing new types of atmospheric pressure plasmas. And since I had a little bit of experience with mass spectrometry from Los Alamos and a little bit of experience of, of ICPs, at least in terms of plasmas um, at, at NAU, I, I was really fascinated by these things, um, especially that these atmospheric pressure plasmas can be really small, low power, and capable of a lot of things. Um, so a postdoc there in particular, Francisco Andrade, uh, had developed this flowing atmospheric pressure afterglow or FAPA source. And he was telling me about his research. He kind of took me under his wing. Um, even though it wasn't my main project, it was really fascinating that these tiny little plasmas that don't require a lot of, of power could be used for elemental analysis or even um, keeping molecules intact, that you could have something that is generally thought of as being really destructive, like a plasma, could actually keep molecules intact and soft substrates intact when they're analyzed. And so that really kind of all of that together kind of kickstarted my interest in these uh, atmospheric pressure plasmas. And that passion has only kind of continued as I learn more about them and, and we pursue them in more detail. Well, Jake, that's an amazing series of events. I'm sure there's a lot of stories in there. <laughs> Too many. Um, can you tell us more about the development of new hardware and software tools for mass spectrometry and how they're different from existing technologies? Sure. Yeah, I'll talk about um, more specifically kind of the things we're pursuing in my lab. Uh, the overarching theme, if you will, of, of the research that we tend to pursue in my lab is to perform chemical analysis that either wasn't possible before, is really difficult to achieve, or needs to be done in an environment that you just can't take instruments to. And so this is really kind of the theme that drives everything that we do in my lab. Um, in terms of the, some of the specific things that we've been working on, I mentioned the, the FAPA source already. Um, we've been using that for direct analysis capabilities, so being able to measure molecules directly off of surfaces. Um, and even more recently, we've even been using the same platform for chemical synthesis, which is really kind of a wacky idea and, and something I never thought I would get into. Um, another kind of unique hardware tool that, that we've um, been working on in my lab is the Solution Cathode Glow Discharge, or SCGD. This is a unique type of atmospheric pressure plasma that's very low power, so it's less than, less than 15 watts, and it's sustained between a metal electrode and the surface of a flowing solution, and that solution is usually the, the sample solution. Now, this was originally developed for optical emission spectroscopy, so looking at the light from the plasma to get uh, information about the elements contained within the solution. And uh, we thought after I started my independent career, hey, this may be a really good source of ions for mass spectrometry. And so we started pursuing that. And uh, to our surprise, we found that really this source is pretty impressive because not only is it very small and easy to build, you only need a DC power supply and a flowing solution, no need for cooling, gases, anything like that. And we were able to get detection limits for elemental species that were rivaling what uh, inductively coupled plasma emission spectroscopy would be capable of. 
we've since pursued that further, and we're now getting close to the detection limits that ICP mass spectrometry is, is achieving, which is really pretty neat. At the same time, though, we found that this SCGD source, uh, when coupled with mass spectrometry, allows us to measure uh, small molecules, as well as even biopolymers, so RNA, uh, peptides, and we can change the plasma conditions on the fly to fragment these molecules and be able to get structural information about them. And so this is really a unique capability that hadn't been seen um, before we had we'd stumbled upon this maybe um, in around 2016, 2015, something like that. Um, and so it, it was really pretty unique to find that. And so that gives a kind of a bit of a, uh, an idea of some of the hardware tools that we're working on. In terms of the software tools, uh, a lot of the, the mass spectrometry that we do is kind of direct analysis, meaning we don't use any chromatography. We're interrogating the sample either in its local environment or without um, any sample preparation. And the complication there is that the spectra that are produced are really complicated. Trying to understand what peaks came from, from which particular analytes can be difficult. And so we've been um, working on some interesting data processing tools um, that are kind of loosely based around cross-correlation algorithms that allow us to be able to identify the peaks in a mass spectrum that come from an individual chemical component within the sample. And so this gives us a way entirely through post-processing to take a really complicated data set that would be very difficult to interpret manually and parse it out a little bit more where it can be uh, interpreted more readily through, say, library searching or something like that. So that kind of gives a, a general idea of some of the things that, that we've been working on. That's very exciting. Your research focuses on detecting and identifying analytes in complex matrices. Can you give us some examples of a complex matrix and how your technology can help analyze it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I and my research group are a part of what's called the Rensselaer Astrobiology Research and Education Center, or RARE Center, um, in which we're trying to really understand the chemistry that would have existed on a realistic earlier, so between four and four and a half billion years ago. Um, and as you might imagine, this is a pretty difficult task. Uh, we don't have a big rock record. And so we need to either mimic early Earth conditions in the lab, which is what my colleagues are doing, and uh, produce very interesting chemistry, which ends up being very complex in the end. Um, we can also look to nearby planets and the chemistry that's been happening on them, such as looking at Martian chemistry. Um, so one of our collaborators, for instance, is Andrew Steele at the Carnegie Institution of Science. He's interested in Martian chemistry, um, and he, he measures this by looking at Martian meteorites and examining Martian meteorites. And so these are very complicated things because you have terrestrial contamination uh, after they've entered the atmosphere and land on Earth that you have to kind of uh, differentiate from what was endogenous from the Martian environment. Then on top of that, you have tens of thousands, if not more, chemical components that are found from Mars and trying to understand what they are. And so this is a really difficult task. So having the ability to be able to, to measure molecular species in complex mixtures and then be able to parse that information out with this cross-correlation type of based algorithm allows us to kind of really understand the system a lot better without going through a lot of painstaking manual processing along the way. Um, so that's kind of one example. Another area we've, we've been applying our solution cathode glow discharge uh, source to is bioreactor monitoring for biopharmaceuticals. 
Um, so these are our react these reactors are large expensive systems that are really living systems that contain a lot of minerals uh, elemental ions uh, metabolites buffers in addition to the biological products that are produced by the cells themselves and maintaining the health of these things is really important so understanding and knowing what the concentration of different small molecule metabolites as well as elemental species is really important and having something like a solution cathode blow discharge that allows us to get elemental and molecular information from the same um, from the same system allows us to be able to get that information without having multiple um, different analytical instruments and really streamlines the process and speeds everything up. Could you share any other potential applications for the solution cathode glow discharge mass spectrometer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fact that we can um, be able to analyze um, yeah, small molecules and even large biopolymers, as well as fragment them, opens up a, a realm of possibilities. Um, currently in, in molecular mass spectrometry, in order to get primary sequence information of biological or even synthetic polymers, what's often done is the, the species in, is put into the instrument, uh, into the vacuum system, and then it is fragmented there. Um, that means that you need to have a very specially designed mass spectrometer to be able to, to get this sequence information. Uh, however, we've seen that with the, the SCGD or the solution cathode glow discharge, we can fragment these molecules at atmospheric pressure. And so that gives us a degree of flexibility that doesn't exist in, in current instrumentation. And so that opens up a realm of possibilities of being able to, to perform, say, peptide sequencing or maybe even small RNA, microRNA sequencing, not in a specialized laboratory with a, with a dedicated mass spectrometer, but be able to have a small mass spectrometer with this compact SCGD source that we can then take to a, a local environment and analyze things on the fly where these things are being produced. Well, Jake, with all this work you're doing, how would you characterize your most significant contributions to atomic spectroscopy at this point? Well, that's that's really yeah difficult to say. Um, I, maybe I'm not even the best judge of that. I think you'd have, probably have to ask somebody else. But um, you know, I'd say kind of the the thing that I I would say that I'm most proud of in terms of the the work we've done with regard to atomic spectroscopy really kind of focuses around the solution cathode glow discharge and the ability to get elemental information, um, even isotopic analysis. Uh, at, at the levels that we normally would see from a very large and expensive inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. And this is with a really compact system. And so where we're headed in the future with this is being able to make a portable mass spectrometer with this type of ion source to enable elemental analysis out in the field, right? Where instead of having an ICP that's locked down in a centralized laboratory and consumes a lot of gas, we can actually take the entire instrument out into the field and do, say, geological dating, or try to uh, measure or understand uh, some nu nuclear forensics if there's some type of, of catastrophe. So I'd say that that's um, certainly a big one. Um, another area that we're really getting into a lot right now that I haven't mentioned yet is multimodal chemical imaging, whereby we obtain chemical images of solid samples, um, and we do this through laser-based sampling, um, namely laser ablation, but at the same time, we record the laser-induced breakdown spectrum by looking at the emission from the laser plasma. So the LIBS information, as it's called, gives us the elemental uh, maps of the surface, and at the same time, from the laser ablation, we produce an aerosol from the sample. We can transfer that to a mass spectrometer, where instead of uh, recording elemental information, we record molecular information. And so 
with each laser shot, we get both the elements that are present within the sample and their location, as well as the molecules. And so this gives us a, a good idea of, of where uh, molecules and elements are, are co-localized within biological tissues or, or other sorts of samples. That's fascinating work. We'll shift gears a little bit here. What inspired you to become a professor of chemistry and how has that role allowed you to further your research interests? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've always kind of been interested in, in mentoring, um, mentoring students, mentoring young people, um, and having an, an immediate impact on, on society. Um, even during my time at NAU, for instance, I, I was a high school football coach just because I really enjoyed that sort of interaction in working with young minds and, and kind of helping foster them. In fact, it was so strong that when I was at NAU and I, I was getting close to graduating, I was uh, really strongly considering staying and getting a master's in education and becoming a high school teacher. Um, it was actually during that time that I was talking with James Barnes, who I mentioned before at Los Alamos, and he urged me uh, that really, if you're interested in the research and you're interested in pursuing new types of plasmas and instrumentation, pursue a PhD, get a PhD, and then if you want to do high school teaching after that, do it. Um, and so I ultimately pursued a PhD and, uh, at Indiana, and while at IU, I became a teaching assistant for lower-level laboratories, upper-level undergraduate laboratories, uh, graduate courses, and I enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed working with the students. I enjoyed those aha moments, seeing when they finally get something right. They learn something new. And every time you learn something new, it instills a little bit of passion um, in a person. And it, it's a really wonderful thing to, to take part in. Um, and so it, it was kind of during that time that I'm like, well, I really kind of like teaching. And I was still thinking of maybe going into high school teaching or, or if not, go to a national laboratory. And around my third, end of my third year of graduate school, um, Gary Hefia really started to urge me to think about becoming a professor. And it was something that I never really thought of because I didn't think it was possible for me that I could attain such a goal. Um, I looked at, at, at you know, the, the people who I view as pillars uh, as professors and I was like, I, how could I get to this level? It doesn't seem possible. And so uh, Hefia would, would urge me on these things and uh, in, in very subtle ways though, I would show up to my office and there would be uh, ACS chemical engineering and engineering news uh, open to the jobs page with different faculty positions circled on them. And I'm like, okay, this, okay, this is fine. I don't know what this <laughs> means. Um, but so this kind of went on and, and after a while he did it enough that I started talking to him more about these and kind of what's expected of being a professor and what it takes. And, and he really kind of, you know, showed me that this is really something pretty interesting and, and maybe worth pursuing. And I'm really glad I did because it's fulfilled the, um, the teaching and mentoring um, aspects of what I've wanted to do basically my entire life. And I get to pursue research. And at the same time, being in academia, I get to pursue the research that I find most interesting. And even if I want to change directions all of a sudden, I can do that, right? Now, there might be funding limitations or whatever, but if I have an idea or one of my students has an idea, we can just do it. Right? We're not beholden to some other, other uh, you know, person who's running a company or something like that. And so allowing, uh, that's probably the biggest benefit of being a professor is that it allows me and the students in my group to kind of have this research freedom that you really wouldn't get anywhere else. Well, as a follow-up, talking about your experience mentoring graduate students and postdoctoral researchers, what qualities do you look for in a potential student? 
Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I actually will expand your question a little bit to not just graduate students and postdocs, but even to undergraduate students or high school students. Um, right this moment, I have a, a high school student in my laboratory as part of this American Chemical Society program, and it's, it's really pretty fascinating. Um, in general, what I look for are uh, that students are really motivated and excited by science and learning, in particular in learning, that they want to learn new things. Um, but most importantly, that they want to do it in a hands-on fashion, right? Not just uh, reading books and, and sticking to just books. Of course, that's important. But if they're motivated and excited by dealing with things in a, in a hands-on manner, that to me shows that they're going to be a good fit in my laboratory. Um, they should also have generally an open scientific mind, right? Not be locked into a, a certain uh, a certain idea of what is most important, but willi willing to pursue a variety of other areas as well. And of course, having some some interest in the topic of what we're doing in particular. Um, those are kind of the main things I look for, and and really that that someone has some strong hands-on ability that they can take something apart and put it back together. Okay, they don't need to necessarily have experience with mass spectrometers or electronics, or they don't need to, you know, know how to use a mill and a lathe. But knowing how to take something apart and put it back together again is a pretty good indicator of whether somebody can uh, is really, really well suited for for building chemical instrumentation. That is, that's exciting. What have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced in your research, and how have you overcome those challenges? Yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly a lot of challenges that are that are uh, are faced in in scientific research in general, and I think I'm going to focus a little bit more broadly on on a couple areas that I've seen that have been a little difficult um, that maybe I wouldn't have considered before uh, coming into this role as a professor. Um, kind of the first one is is new discoveries that have a major impact. Um, when you're doing something new in the lab and you recognize that this could have some really major importance, for instance, when we found that we the SCGD could ionize peptides and fragment them at atmospheric pressure. Uh, there's this fear, and, and it's a legitimate fear, of being scooped, that someone else may stumble, come along and take the idea and publish it. And so there's an urgency there to get the work out and to, to disseminate it to the broader community um, and then move on to kind of expanding those capabilities and understanding it better. At the same time, though, really novel technologies and really novel discoveries they often take a lot of convincing to be able to get them through the peer review process. I mean, there's many, many examples of this. Uh, Van Dyne, when he first discovered the surface enhanced Raman effect, uh, you have Sam Houck uh, in developing the, the first uh, ICPMS instrument. They all have these stories that it took a very long time to convince the scientific community that these were worthwhile and real things that should be pursued. And so there's this kind of back and forth that you want to get the information out there to the scientific community, um, but at the same time, you also have to do some convincing along the way. And so that's a, a challenge that I had, I had not fully appreciated before becoming a professor. The other uh, area that I've really seen some challenges is in the areas of, of multidisciplinary science or interdisciplinary science, which is really that's where the future of, of science research is, is headed, and maybe it's already there right now. Um, but that's where my group has been getting heavily involved in. And the biggest challenge that we faced, in particular, say, in the Rare Center, um, in the Astrobiology Center here, we have people who are geologists and physicists and biologists and chemists all trying to communicate with one another. 
The problem is that we have different language and we use terminology very differently. And you would think something as small as a, 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 a certain word being used in a different way would not cause such a problem, but it really does. And so there's a pretty uh, large uh, kind of, it takes a little while to be able to uh, start to communicate with colleagues where you are really trying to, uh, starting to understand each other to the point that you can make significant progress in the research. And that's, that's something that I had, I guess I knew, but I didn't really appreciate how much effort one needs to put in into really performing um, multidisciplinary science successfully. Well, could you tell us about your volunteer activities, uh, such as your involvement in organizing conferences and acting as a referee for different scientific journals? So at the moment, um, I am the, I'll be the awards chair for the SciEx conference, the 2023 SciEx conference, which will be in Sparks, Nevada in October. Um, the SciEx conference is run by the Federation of Analytical Chemistry and Spectroscopy Societies, or FACS. Um, this has been a really great experience seeing how a conference is put together, um, seeing another part of the, the entire scientific research ecosystem uh, has been really fascinating to see how a conference comes together and how it's put on and the amount of effort and volunteer work that has to go into doing this. It's been really, really pretty impressive. Um, I'm also going to be the, the technical program chair of this SciEx conference next year in 2024, and that'll be in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And so it's it's been a really neat experience to kind of think about how you can devise a technical program to, that covers a lot of areas of spectroscopy that seat, suits the needs of the conferees, but also allows people to present their science and make sure that it's disseminated to the, the widest possible audience. So that's been really pretty, uh, pretty fun to, to kind of work in in an area that I had not really seen too much of before. Um, in terms of the the um, working on scientific journals, uh, I've recently become a member of the editorial board for a new journal called Applied Spectroscopy Practica, uh, which is an open access journal um, put out by the Society for Applied Spectroscopy. Um, and it, it's been really re pretty rewarding to, again, see another aspect of uh, the scientific research realm in terms of dissemination of, of information and how these journals come together, um, what the what goes on behind the scenes, kind of how the sausage is made sort of thing um, that I had never really seen before. And so it, it's been pretty rewarding and I'm really looking forward to be being involved in this uh, in the longer term. Those are exciting activities, a lot going on. Can you discuss any ongoing or upcoming projects you're working on? What impact do you hope they'll have in the field of analytical chemistry? Yeah, sure. I, I can do a little bit of that. Um, unfortunately, there's one that I really want to talk about. And if this this podcast were two months down the road, I, I would be able to talk to it about it in a lot more detail. Um, but I would say that the first one that I can talk a lot more about is related to this, this cross-correlation based algorithm for um, analysis of mass spectrometry data. Uh, this can be really powerful. As, as I mentioned, this gives us a way to be able to relate ions in a mass spectrum to an originating chemical species within a sample. What this means is that if we can add energy to an ion uh, in the mass spectrometer and fragment it, then we can get the fragments that are get then going to be related to the molecular ion. And with that, we can be able to determine with a, a fairly good confidence what the molecule is, the identity of the molecule. 
that's typically done now. Um, it's something called tandem mass spectrometry, but this is done on a per mass to mass basis. So one ion selected, fragmented, and so on. With this cross-correlation approach, we already have some indication that this could be possible uh, across the entire mass range, right? So instead of choosing one ion to fragment, we can basically get uh, correlate fragments with their, their intact species uh, within an entire spectrum. And we have some idea that these are library searchable with existing libraries that are already out there. And so this would have uh, some really massive impact in terms of speeding up the throughput of, of chemical analysis, particularly in uh, the biochemistry fields where there's a lot of uh, the proteomics fields, where there's a, a lot of <clears throat> interpretation of uh, sequence information of peptides and proteins, for instance. Uh, you also have uh, there be some utility in the environmental uh, analysis realm where you have a large variety of species that are going to be detected um, in, in this area. So I'm really looking forward to what's going to be happening with that, um, not only in environmental chemistry, but also on the astrobiology side where we're dealing with these really complex uh, messes. The other area that I wish I, I could talk about in a lot more detail is uh, we have a project that's really pretty cool and honestly completely mind-blowing at the same time that uh, we're we're incorporating acoustics into mass spectrometry. So using acoustic fields in a really interesting way with mass spectrometry. And so I'm going to leave a little bit of a teaser by just saying that this is so mind-blowing and impressive to me that every few days I have to go back down in the lab and repeat this so that I can ver verify to myself that this is a real thing that's happening. So just wait in the next couple of months. Uh, we'll have a lot more information about that. We'll have to stay tuned on that. So what advice would you give to aspiring chemists or researchers just in general? Ooh, I'd say, you know, especially over the, the experiences I've had since starting my independent career, um, that, that researchers should really be open to collaborations um, and particularly those that may be in areas of science that uh, the person is unfamiliar with, okay? Um, there's a lot of benefits to this. You meet people in different communities, okay? Um, and it may not result in a lot of, uh, may, not, may not produce a lot of results right away, um, but you learn a lot about a field and you learn about something that's kind of connected to an area that, that you work in. And down the road, that information will probably come back to help you. And I've already seen this many times now, um, for instance, with this FAPA source, this is how we got back into this, or how, how we got into this, plasma synthesis realm was that some interesting chemistry that we thought was a bad thing for chemical analysis turns out to be really good for um, some unique uh, uh, chemical synthesis and, and modifying uh, alkanes, for instance, um, and other <clears throat> difficult to deal with uh, species. And that only came around because we had this knowledge in other spaces. So I'd really urge people to pursue collaborations in other fields of science. And just if nothing comes from it, don't get upset about it. Just kind of keep that information in your back pocket because it'll probably come back to help you down the road. Well, following up on that, how do you really stay up to date with the latest developments and trends in your field? And what resources do you typically rely on? So I use, um, you know, maybe not the most modern modern tools that people would for staying up to date. Uh, I still use things like RSS feeds. I have a list of journals that I routinely go to their websites and look at the, you know, recently published or as soon as published um, articles as well as the new issues and just kind of scan through them. But in all honesty, the the amount of of um, 
publications that are coming out is really kind of overwhelming and it's, it's um, getting difficult to stay on top of all of it. And it's even worse when you're working in and collaborating in multiple areas of, of science to be able to stay on top of everything. And so uh, the other way that I tend to get a, a lot of the what's uh, what's great and new is through communication, just conversations um, with my colleagues in other areas, going to conferences and, and uh, going to talks that are outside of my field, going to talks that are inside of my field and just communicating with scientists at seminars and conferences across the board. And um, so with all of that, it kind of helps, helps me stay up to date on what's going on both in my field and in, in related areas. Can you share with us any collaborations you've had with other researchers or institutions and what you've learned from those types of experiences? Yeah, I'll, I'll probably, um, I'll classify these into kind of two, two broader categories. Um, one, I'll give an example of, of a couple instances, uh, which is in, includes this astrobiology center that we have here, the RARE Center. Um, another one is, is also uh, that I've been working in lately is the Jefferson Project at Lake George. Um, this is a collaboration between RPI, IBM, and the Lake George Association, um, interested in, in looking at limnology of uh, Lake George, which is in upstate New York, but now it's been expanded to a number of freshwater lakes uh, throughout New York and the United States. And what I like about these uh, collaborations is that they, they're really interdisciplinary. We have biologists, chemists, physicists, geologists, engineers, all working together to help solve really large-scale problems. And the benefit of these collaborations is that they present a broader picture of a, of a large-scale science. It allows me to step back and allows the students in my group to step back instead of focusing on one narrow area of science and see a broader picture of something that, that is impacting society. I also like it because it reminds me of the role that analytical chemistry plays in the broader uh, scientific research realm. Right? It helps me identify what gaps are currently existing for the people that are, that are interested in these broader scientific questions. And that allows me and, and my students to come up with ideas of, okay, they're having this issue instead of just trying to come up with a method that, you know, with existing instrumentation, maybe a better approach is a new type of instrument altogether that will allow people to pursue something they haven't before. And so I find that really intellectually stimulating and, and the discussions from that with my colleagues are really fantastic. The kind of other category that I'll, that I'll put in terms of um, collaborations are ones with people that are kind of more like-minded and work in a similar area. In my case, similar to, you know, other analytical chemists or atomic spectroscopists. Um, in this case, one example I can give is for the, the Federal Institute of Materials Research and Testing in Germany, which is called BOM. So it's like the German version of the National Institutes of Standards and Technology here in, in the U.S. Um, this is neat because uh, there are like-minded people that are analytical scientists, and so we speak the same language, and that allows us to push each other in terms of developing new ideas and seeing where a specific realm of analytical science should move. And, and so it keeps me excited and motivated in the development of new instrumentation, um, as well as pushing each other along the way. And so I, I kind of try to balance the, the types of collaborations that we have into those two categories. So we get exposure to both and my students do as well. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your background. How has your research been influenced by your previous mentors and collaborators, such as Gary Hefia, Graham Cook, Suey, Karst and Karsten Engelhard. 
Yeah, the, in terms of the, the research, it's been heavily influenced. I mean, we we I joined their groups and, and worked with them because I really enjoyed the type of science that they were pursuing and the topics that they were pursuing. And probably what I've gained a lot from them in that time and even since um, in, in following their careers and, and communicating with them since is a lot of uh, aspects of how to develop a research program and how to pursue research ideas, right? From Gary Hefe's lab, I learned a lot about how to just pursue what you find interesting, right? If you find a topic that's new and fun, tackle it, go after it. Don't, don't hold back on it, right? Don't hold, pigeonhole yourself to some area that you're already working in. Learn something new and push yourself. In the case of working for Graham Cooks, his entire career, he's been pushing mass spectrometry outside of the realm of a physicist lab and, a, and a, a simple analytical characterization tool for chemists and showing that mass spectrometry has a lot broader utility and has done a fantastic job of that. And seeing how uh, the proliferation of mass spectrometry as a technique is, uh, has occurred over the past several decades is really phenomenal. In the case of Uwe Karst at the University of Münster, he works on a lot of these large-scale uh, problems that I kind of mentioned before, these interdisciplinary problems, and seeing the large teams that he works with and, and what the analytical science that he provides and the analytical knowledge that he provides and his group provides can tackle these questions. It's really, it's really uh, inspiring. In terms of, of Carson Engelhard, he's really been pushing the envelope of, of new techniques, especially in atomic spectroscopy, of finding an area where there's a gap that's missing and, and pushing at it and making it better. For instance, single particle ICPMS is an area that he's really made a lot of advancements in. And, and so taking that information from them of how to build a research program that's effective and, and meaningful, not only for the students that are in the group, but the, but the broader analytical science community. That is quite a group. That's a, a hall of fame group you've worked with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What are some of the most exciting developments or emerging technologies in your field and what impact do you see them having in the near future? You know, there's been uh, a number of, of techniques that have, I've seen kind of uh, form in their, their infancy in, in kind of a local scientific community. And they're now getting to the point of being translated into other areas of science. And that has been really neat. Um, one example that I just mentioned is single particle ICPMS. Um, where an inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer can be used to, uh, to size and determine number concentrations of particulate matter, such as elemental nanoparticles is where this originally started at, but now we're starting to see progression into uh, looking at microplastics and even being able to detect microplastics um, using this method. And so it's taking kind of uh, an instrument that a lot of people just assume is, is meant for routine analysis in ICPMS and coming up with a new way to use it to be able to get answers to some really um, pressing environmental and, and current ch uh, challenges that we have in, in our environment. Um, another one that, that I've really been excited to see is the, the proliferation of uh, mass spectrometry, mainly on the molecular side, uh, being used as a tool in, in medical science, and in particular, the operating theater. And so uh, people like Zoltan Takic and, and you have Olivia Everlin and uh, several others are developing technologies that allow surgeons to be able to, uh, that are coupled with mass spectrometers, I should say, that allow surgeons to get real-time information about uh, the, the parts of the body that they're removing to see if a, a part of a, 
a tumor that's being removed is still cancerous or not, and they get that feedback in real time. So it allows surgeries to happen faster. Uh, it lowers the risk of needing um, additional surgeries and other complications. And so seeing these technologies go from, you know, hearing about them just at, you know, an, a, a SciEx conference or an ASMS conference where it's just analytical scientists and now seeing it used and talk, talked about in the broader, even pop, uh, pop culture and pop science realms has been really, really pretty cool. Well, that is exciting. Um, not to throw you off, but as far as the emerging technology of artificial intelligence and analytical instrumentation, do you have any opinions on that? I do. That was actually, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of opinions. About that. Um, I, I think that is 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 something that um, just like we were dealing with um, in all realms, artificial intelligence is something that we should probably a, approach uh, cautiously as as an analytical chemistry community, um, because the, the benefits are absolutely there. Right? We have large data sets already, even legacy data sets that we could go back. We could take even data sets from missions to Mars or the moon and be able to reprocess data and get information that we didn't have before, which is just incredible to think about. Um, un unfortunately, the, the dilemma there is uh, a lot of times people kind of think about AI and machine learning as, as a bit of a black box. And um, that, that's troublesome if, we, if that keeps, to, keeps propagating where uh, we don't have people that understand the, the basics behind AI and machine learning, then it can be very dangerous. We can make decisions on information that, that's, that's false in the end. So I think we have to be a little cautious in how we do this and how we approach um, artificial intelligence. But <clears throat> I, I think in the end, the way to do this is through education. We need to involve more people um, who are from computer science and who are involved in, in um, developing AI and machine learning and chemometric methods. Um, we need to be teaching that more at a, at a lower level um, in really high schools, undergraduate levels, to, so that people know what goes into these algorithms. And at the same time, we still need to teach the, the basic analytical principles um, because every response should have some chemical behavior behind it. And so understanding those connections is going to be really important moving forward so that we don't just blindly jump into responding um, to whatever an algorithm would say to us without knowing why. I'm in full agreement with you there. Uh, crystal balls and the tricorder have always been very fascinating ideas. Um, and of course, AI is dependent on how it's programmed and what information it's given. So how do you see the field of atomic spectroscopy changing in the next five to 10 years? And what new directions or technologies or applications do you see emerging? Yeah, I think the, in general, what we're gonna be seeing with atomic spectroscopy in the near future is growth. Um, I would say maybe a regrowth, right? Uh, over the past, 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, there's been a decline in the number of people who are working in atomic spectroscopy uh, because it's, it's viewed as being largely a solved problem, right? The inductively coupled plasma came along, coupled with emission spectroscopy, gave amazing detection limits, came along with mass spectrometry, even better detection limits, allows a lot of capabilities. And so people say, why do we need anything else? Uh, this seems like a solved problem. But I think we're starting to realize now that there are a lot of, of uh, broad chemical problems, um, whether they be in the environment or otherwise, that require uh, atomic uh, spectroscopic instrumentation that uh, ICP doesn't fulfill. 
Okay, so something like a, a solution cathode glow discharge or a liquid sampling atmospheric pressure glow discharge like Penn Marcus has developed at Clemson that allows you to take atomic spectroscopy into the field really allows uh, the, the people working in, in other areas to solve uh, questions that they never would have been able to before. And so I think what we're going to see is a lot more people coming back into the atomic spectroscopy community, particularly on the instrument development side, in making tailored instrumentation to solve these problems. Okay? Whether it's a portable instrument to be able to measure isotopic signals when you're out on, uh, in, a, in a hike collecting rocks as part of a, a, you know, a geological study. Uh, alternatively, getting multiple uh, types of information, not only about what elemental species are present, but about what molecular species and biomolecular species are present. This kind of multimodal uh, chemical analysis sort of approach is, is really starting to grow and expand. And so I, I predict that we're going to see uh, more involvement of atomic spectroscopy in that. Uh, we, we've seen that already a little bit in, in the field of metalomics, so trying to understand the role that metals play in, in certain protein functions. Um, and I think we're only going to see that grow even more. And, and one example of this, I think, is that, that we'll probably start seeing a lot more involvement of atomic spectroscopic methods, um, say, in the operating theater, kind of like we've seen with molecular mass spectrometry that allow us to be able to, to make medical diagnostics um, related to elemental species instead of um, instead of relying on, on only molecular analysis. So I think those are kind of some of the areas that we're going to start start seeing to emerge here over the next uh, decade or so. Well, thank you, Jake, for this very informative discussion on the recent advances in atomic spectroscopy. I'm sure our audience has learned a lot about this topic as I have. Your thoughts on the subject have been extremely thought provoking, so we thank you for that. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that's worked to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned to our next informative, analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, education is not the learning of facts, but the training of the mind to think. <laughs>